I would like to welcome everybody to the Hebraic Heritage Ministries Yeshiva Discipleship Program. We are currently doing a series on the biblical festivals. In this session, we are going to do a teaching regarding the themes of Shavuot or the Feast of Pentecost. The first thing that we want to look at is when is Shavuot, which is the Hebrew term that means sevens, the term that we normally use is Pentecost outside of using the Hebrew word in traditional Christianity. In Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, it will tell us that Shavuot is 50 days after first fruits. And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. Therefore, Shavuot, or Pentecost, is seven complete weeks plus one day, or fifty days following the festival of first fruits. In Leviticus chapter 23 verse 15, when it makes mention of the counting from the day that you brought the sheaf, the word sheaf there is the Hebrew word omer. It is the Strong's number 6016. Therefore, this seven weeks of counting is referred to as the counting of the omer. Shavuot follows the season of Passover and unleavened bread. So you have the season of Passover, unleavened bread. You have the seven weeks of counting the Omer. And then you arrive at Shavuot or Pentecost. There is a traditional prayer that is done in Orthodox Judaism for counting the Omer. The traditional prayer, first in Hebrew, is Baruch Atah Yahweh Eloheinu Melech Ha'olam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotah Vitivanu Al Seferet HaOmer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the counting of the Omer. How is the counting done in traditional Judaism? It is done this way. For days, you would say, today is the one day of the Omer. For weeks, you would say, today is seven days, which are one week of the Omer. For a combination of days and weeks, you would say, Today is 26 days, which are three weeks and five days of the Omer. And after you complete the seven weeks of counting, the next day is the celebration of the holiday of Shavuot, or the 50th day. In traditional Judaism, it is a custom that following the counting of the Omer, 
you read Psalm 67. The reason given for reading Psalm 67 is that this psalm has 49 words in Hebrew, which is going to correspond to the seven complete weeks or 49 days of the counting of the Omer. If you look at Psalm 67 in its detail, it is actually a prayer for the Messianic era. And so let's look at Psalm 67, some of the verses contained therein, and see some of the phrases that makes a association or connection to the Messianic era. In Psalm 67, verse 1, it says, God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. The phrase, his face shining upon us, is a reference to the mercy of the God of Israel. His mercy is associated with redeeming his people and the redemption from the worldwide exile of the house of Jacob is going to be associated with the Messianic era. So that phrase is linked with the redemption from exile and thus the Messianic era. Psalm 67 verse 2, that your way may be known upon the earth, your saving health among all nations. It's during the Messianic era that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and that your way is known upon the earth among all nations. Psalm 67 verse 4, O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon the earth. When's he judging the people? It says in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4, that he will rule during the Messianic era with a rod of iron, and he's governing the nations upon the earth. He's ruling and reigning over them. Psalm 67, verse 6, Then shall the earth yield her increase. This is the blessings upon the earth during the Messianic era. It's described as being bountiful and fruitful. In Psalm 67, verse 7, God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. When is all the earth got to have a reverence for Messiah? It is going to be during the Messianic era. So Psalm 67 is actually a prayer that pertains to the Messianic era. There is and has been for at least 2,000 years a great controversy regarding how do you count the Omer. In the first century, various sects such as the Sadducees, the Boethusians, and the Essenes. The Essenes are the group that lived in the Dead Sea or the Qumran area. And later, the Karaites, which means biblical scripturalists, had a disagreement with the Pharisees, who are traced today to rabbinic Judaism on when you start counting the Omer. The Boethusians were considered a sect of the Sadducees. They received their name from Simon, son of Bothus, who was appointed high priest by Herod the Great in 24 before the Common Era. And this is recorded for us by Josephus in Antiquity, chapter 15, section 320. The Sadducees, Bothusians, and Karaites maintain that the counting of the Omer should begin the first day following the weekly Sabbath. 
the Essenes believed it started on the Sunday after the end of the entire eight-day festival, which would be one week later, depending upon how things fell that particular year within the framework of the seven-day week. It would fall upon certain circumstances one week later than the Sadducees, Boethusians, and the Karaites. The Pharisees, which are traced to modern rabbinic Judaism today, maintains that the counting should begin on Aviv or Nisan 16, which is the day following the first day of unleavened bread. The Pharisees affirm that the date of the counting should be Aviv or Nisan 16. We can see this from the Talmud in Menahot 65a, which says the following. What was the procedure? The messengers of the Beit Din used to go out on the day before the festival and tie the unreaped corn in bunches to make it easier to reap. All the inhabitants of the towns nearby assembled there so that it might be reaped with much display. As soon as it became dark, he called out, Has the sun set? And they answered, Yes. Has the sun set? And they answered, Yes. With this sickle? And they answered, Yes. With this sickle? And they answered, Yes. Into this basket? And they answered, Yes. Into this basket? And they answered, Yes. On the Sabbath, he called out further, On this Sabbath? And they said, Yes. Once again, On this Sabbath? And they answered, Yes. Shall I reap? And they answered, Reap. Shall I reap? And they answered, Reap. He repeated every manner three times, and they said, Yes, yes, yes. And why was this done? Because of the Boethusians, who maintained that the reaping of the Omer was not to take place at the conclusion of the first day of the festival. So they were making a religious point in what they were doing and how they were doing it. For the Boethusians held that the Feast of Weeks must always be on the day after the weekly Sabbath. What is the Karite view and what are their arguments for their position? In Leviticus chapter 23 verse 11 it says, And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it. In Hebrew where it says the Sabbath, it is in Hebrew, Ha-Shabbat. And the Karaites say that Ha-Shabbat, that Shabbat refers to the weekly Sabbath. Because it says Ha-Shabbat, which means the Shabbat, they say the Shabbat is a reference back to the seventh day in creation, the day that the God of Israel rested from his work of creating the heavens and the earth, which is found in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. Furthermore, the Karaites say that if the counting begins on Aviv or Nisan 16, and this day falls in the middle of the week, you cannot begin start counting in the middle of the week and count seven complete weekly Sabbaths. Because the commandment in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 15 says that you shall count seven Sabbaths shall you count seven complete Sabbaths. Furthermore, the Karaites support their view from Leviticus chapter 23, verse 14, it says, And ye shall eat neither bread 
nor parched corn, nor green ears, until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering unto your God, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So you're not allowed to eat bread or parched corn or green ears until you've brought the first fruit offering unto your God. In Joshua chapter 5 verses 10 and 11, it is written, And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. Then it says in Joshua chapter 5 verse 11, And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover. The Karaites say that the phrase morrow after the Passover is referring to the 15th of Aviv or Nisan, and the Passover is making a reference to the 14th day when the Passover sacrifice was made. And then it says that they ate unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day, which means that they, according to Leviticus 23.14, you cannot eat the unleavened cakes and parched corn until you have brought the first fruit offering. And so they say here that the first fruit offering couldn't have been made on the 16th. So here, the morrow after the Passover and the day of the Omer offering back in Joshua chapter 5 verses 10 and 11 was, the Karaites say, the 15th of Aviv and so thus invalidates the rabbinical view. Furthermore, the Karaites say to substantiate that interpretation of Joshua chapter 5 verse 11 that the morrow after the Sabbath is referring to the 15th day of Aviv or Nisan. They make a connection to Numbers chapter 33 verse 3 which says, and they departed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month on the morrow after the Passover. Here they're saying the 15th day is using the same phrase, morrow after the Passover, which appears in Joshua chapter 5 verse 11, thus validating that the morrow after the Passover is indeed the 15th day of the first month. They say, therefore, in Joshua chapter 5 verse 11, the Passover on the 14th of Aviv in that year would have taken place then on a Saturday. That's the Karite view. Now let's look at the rabbinic Jewish view or the Pharisee view going back to the first century. In Leviticus chapter 25 verse 8, the word Sabbath appears. It says, And you shall number seven Sabbaths. The Strong's number is 7676. And this is the Hebrew word Shabbat. You shall number seven Sabbaths of years unto you, seven times seven years in the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto you 49 years. The rabbinical view is that the word Sabbath doesn't always necessarily mean the weekly Sabbath. Here the word Sabbath is connected with just a seven, a period of seven years, an association with a period of time that's connected with a seven. It could be seven years, it could be seven months, it could be seven days. It just means and can mean a seven. Furthermore, in looking at Leviticus 23 verse 11 and the phrase on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, they say the rabbinical Pharisaic view is that the Sabbath here refers to the day of rest and the high Sabbath of the first day of unleavened bread. Aviv or Nisan 15 is specified as being a day of rest and it is a Shabbaton. 
Another argument that they give is that Shavuot or Pentecost is a celebration of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, which the rabbis say happened on Savan 6. Therefore, in order to have the celebration to be on Savan 6, the counting of the Omer should begin on Aviv or Nisan 16. Then, looking at Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, as the rabbis are going to interpret the phrase morrow after the Passover in Joshua chapter 5, verse 11, they're going to say that sequence in Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 is the following. The 14th of Aviv or Nisan, the Passover is kept. And then the very next day is the commandment to keep the first day of unleavened bread, which is a high Sabbath. It's a Shabbaton. So on the 15th, they did this. Therefore, Joshua 5.11, when it refers to the morrow after the Passover, the word Passover there is not referring to the 14th or the day when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, but it's referring to the Passover season of which Passover and unleavened bread are related and connected together as a season in both Together, they can be called the Passover season. So Passover, the rabbis say, is referring to the season and not just the Passover sacrifice that would have been done or is associated with the 14th. Furthermore, they say that when you eat the Passover meal, when you eat the meal, the eating of the meal extends into the 15th of Aviv or Nisan. And so therefore, the morrow after the Passover, if the meal extends in the 15th, the next day would be the 16th. So the morrow after the Passover in Joshua chapter 5 verse 11 is referring to the 16th of Aviv and not the 15th as the Karaites would view it. Let's look at another principle of understanding how Shavuot is connected to the coming out of Egypt by asking the question, when is the conclusion of Passover? The counting of the Omer, it is seen as actually what connects the coming out of Egypt in the Passover season with the celebration of Shavuot. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, we can see how the God of Israel linked the coming out of Egypt with the events that took place at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, it says, He said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a token unto you that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you will thus serve God upon this mountain, referring to Mount Sinai. There's a connection with coming out of Egypt, which is associated with Passover or being redeemed. The purpose of that was to serve him on the mountain, so thus it is connected with Pentecost. In order to make the connection, it is said that Shavuot or Pentecost is the conclusion of coming out of Egypt or the Passover season. The Hebrew word is atzeret. Pentecost is the atzeret or the conclusion of Passover. In looking at counting the Omer in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 15, once again the word sheaf that appears in the verse is the Strong's number 6016. It's the Hebrew word Omer and an Omer means a dry measure one-tenth of an ephah, or it can mean a sheaf. We can see this definition of an omer in Exodus chapter 16, verse 36, which says, Now an omer is the tenth part of an ephah. The rabbis 
In examining Exodus chapter 16, verse 36, the omer is a tenth of an ephah, interpreted the word omer as a measure of grain and also ruled that the omer is to be brought of barley only. This is found in the Talmud in Menahot 68b. A sheaf in the Bible can represent a person or a group of people. We can see this from Genesis chapter 37, verse 5 and verse 7. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about, and made obedience to my sheaf. What does the counting of the Omer represent spiritually to us as believers and Yeshua as the Messiah being a people who are in covenant relationship with the God of Israel? Counting the Omer represents growing in spiritual maturity. In Ephesians chapter 4 verses 14 and 15 it says, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things which is the head, even Messiah. These verses in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 14 and 15 speaks about the spiritual growth process of a believer in the Messiah where we grow up into him in the full maturity. Let's look what was done with the Omer and see how it has a application spiritually for us as believers in Yeshua the Messiah. In Menahot chapter 10, sections 1 through 5 in the Mishnah, it describes what was done to the Omer. If the barley was ripe, it was taken from the vicinity of Jerusalem. Otherwise, it could be brought from anywhere in Israel. It was reaped by three men, each with his own skiff and basket. The grain was then brought to the temple where it was threshed or beaten, as well as being parched and spread on the courtyard floor to be dried by the wind, milled, and ground into fine flour. What is the spiritual meaning of the omer, which can represent a person? So we're applying it to us as individuals who have come out of Egypt, which is a type of the world and the world system. And our destiny is to serve the God of Israel. Being threshed or beaten represents humility. How can we see this? In Isaiah chapter 41, verses 14 and 15, it is written, Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, and you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains, and what happens when you thresh the mountains? And beat them small, and shall make the hills as chaff. Mount Sinai itself where the commandments were given to the nation of Israel by the God of Israel, represents humility. In Midrash Tehillim, which is Psalms, on Tehillim, or Psalms chapter 68, verse 17, the comment is the following. The God of Israel chose Mount Sinai for the giving of the Torah because it is the smallest of the mountains, thus emphasizing the importance 
of receiving and learning the ways of the God of Israel with humility. The Bible says that those who are humble will be exalted. In Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15 it is written, For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Matthew chapter 18 verse 4 says, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same that humbles himself will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23 verse 12 says, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased or brought low, but he that humbles himself shall be exalted. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 8, we're told how Messiah, when he came and died on the tree, he did so by humbling himself. Philippians 2.8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. James chapter 4 verse 10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. Next we can see from Midrash Rabbah, Leviticus chapter 28 and section 2, we can see what was done to the Omer, that it was parched in fire. Rabbi Abin said, Come and observe how much anxiety Israel experienced on account of the commandment of the sheaf, or the Omer. The sages, however, say that they used to thresh it. Then it was placed in a tube. This tube had holes in it so that the fire could get at it. What does the fire represent? It represents, among other things, Judgment. We can see how fire represents judgment in Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Exodus chapter 9, verse 23. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along upon the ground. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. Jeremiah chapter 52 verse 13 and burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and all the houses of the great men burned he with fire Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire he's being judged and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever Fire not only represents judgment, but it also represents and is associated with refinement and purification. Psalm chapter 12 verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 9 says, And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. 
In Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, it is written, And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. How is gold and silver purged? With fire that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So in order to offer an offering of righteousness, you have to be purged with fire. That's to get the impurities out of your life, which is sin. Fire also represents the trials of our faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Yeshua HaMashiach. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And if you look up the word temptations, it means trials. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, which if, once again, if you look up the word, it means one that endures trials, tribulations. For when he is tried, goes through trials and tribulations, he shall receive the crown of life when he overcomes, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. The Omer, in addition to being beaten and put into the fire, it was tossed in the wind. Once again, from Midrash Rabbah, Leviticus chapter 28, section 2 says, Rabbi Abin said, Come and observe how much anxiety Israel experienced on account of the commandment of the sheaf. The sages, however, say they used to thresh it. Then they spread it out in the temple courtyard, and the wind blew upon it. And then they brought it to the grist grinder's mill. The omer tossed to the wind represents every wind of doctrine. And this is the association that's made in Ephesians in chapter 4. Beginning in verse 8 and then reading verse 11, it says, Wherefore he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. In the last session, we saw that Yeshua, his resurrection is associated with first fruits. So then we can connect Ephesians chapter 4, 8 and 11, him ascending on high with Messiah being a first fruit offering. And then what happens after first fruit? You have the counting of the omer. And then it goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Messiah, that is spiritual maturity, growing in spiritual maturity, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So it's using this terminology in association with the counting of the Omer and what was done with the Omer, that it was tossed in the wind, and it's applying it to our faith and how in growing up we are not tossed to and fro or we don't go between every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. We can also see how the Omer was tossed into the wind in Midrash Rabbah, Leviticus 28, and section 2, Rabbi Abin said, Come and observe how much anxiety Israel experienced on account of the commandment of the sheaf. For we have learned elsewhere, and that is in the Talmud and Menahot 66a, 
that they cut it down, placed it in a basket, and brought it to the temple courtyard and parched it at the fire in order to comply with the law requiring it to be offered parched. These are the words of Rabbi Mir. The sages, however, say they used to thresh it first with reeds and stalks of plants so that it might not be reduced in quantity. It was placed in a tube. This tube had holes in it so that fire could get at it. Then they spread it out in the temple courtyard, and the wind blew upon it, and then they brought it to the grist grinder's mill. In this process, the ulmer was ground into fine flour. And so it says in the Mishnah and Menahot chapter 10, sections 1 through 5, the grain was then brought to the temple where it was threshed, parched, spread on the courtyard floor to be dried by the wind, milled, and then ground into fine flour. What's the spiritual meaning of fine flour? It represents also refinement, purification, and being made white. And white in the Bible represents being righteous. Isaiah chapter 48 verse 10 says, But I have refined you, but not with silver. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. Daniel chapter 12 verse 10. Many shall be purified and be made white, purified and made white, and tried. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 Yeshua says he that overcomes the same shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before the angels next what was done is that the grain or the omer was sifted through 13 sieves after it was ground into fine flour what's the meaning of this the numerical value of the Hebrew word achad is 13. Achad is aleph, chet, and dalet. Aleph has a numerical value of 1, het has a numerical value of 8, and dalet has a numerical value of 4. So the numerical value of achad is 13. The fine flour goes through 13 sieves, which is going to represent achad, or oneness, or unity. And this is what happened with the children of Israel when they came to Mount Sinai. The Bible says that they were all in unity. How do we understand that? In Exodus chapter 19 verse 2 it says, For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness. And there Israel camped before the mounts. And I have the Hebrew here from Exodus chapter 19 and verse where it says in Israel camp there it does not say the Yahanu which is the plural form they camped but it says in the Hebrew the Yahan which is the singular form he camped and so Israel is plural but being camped is singular therefore it's communicating that the people the corporate people had become one. In Acts chapter 2, we are told that on the day of Pentecost that there was unity and they were all in one accord. And in Acts chapter 2 verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord. They were in unity in one place. What is the summary of the counting of the Omer? 
An omer or sheaf can spiritually represent a person or group of people. The journey from leaving Egypt, which is a type of the world and the world's system, consists of a time of preparation, which is the counting of the omer, for the purpose of meeting with the God of Israel at the mountain where we are to serve him. Exodus chapter 3 verse 12. The spiritual journey consists of becoming humble, which is the beating of the barley, going through judgment, trials, and purification, which is parched in fire. It is to remove unsound doctrine or beliefs after coming out of Egypt in the world, the world's ways, the world system, which is the tossing in the wind of the grain. Then the grain became fine flour, which is a representation of refinement and living a righteous life. And then living in unity with other brethren, which is the 13 sieves. So this is the spiritual meaning of the counting of the omer. Shavuot is a harvest of wheat. It is a wheat festival. Exodus chapter 34 verse 22 says, And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. In traditional Judaism, the book of Ruth is read during Shavuot. Why is this done? Because the book of Ruth mentions the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. We can see this from Ruth chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. And Naomi said unto Ruth her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maidens, that they meet you not in any other field. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of the barley harvest and of wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Ruth is a non-Jew who followed Torah. How can we understand this? Well, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, it says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not make clean riddance of the corners of your field when you reap. Neither shall you gather any gleaning of your harvest. You shall leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So according to Torah, the corners of the field is to be left for the poor and the stranger. Ruth chapter 2 verse 2 says, Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. She's doing it in the sight of him that I will find grace. And she said unto her, Go my daughter. Ruth chapter 2 verse 7 says, And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Ruth chapter 2 verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Ruth chapter 2 verse 23. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of the barley harvest and of the wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. She's doing according to what the Torah says that she should do. Shavuot is to be celebrated by both Jew and non-Jew. We can see this 
from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. And you shall keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering of your hand, which you shall give unto the Lord your God according as the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter and your manservant and your maidservant and the Levite that is within your gates and the stranger. Rejoice you and the stranger. Keep the feast of weeks or Shavuot and the fatherless and the widow that are among you in the place which the Lord your God has chosen to place his name there. The Torah was given on the 6th of Sivan. How do we know this? It says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, In the third month when the children of Israel gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day. The third month, the same day. So which day are we talking about? The third day. So the third month, the third day, came they unto the wilderness of Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10 and 11 tells us what happens next. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. So in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, they're there on the third day, in the third month, and then the God of Israel says, Have the people sanctify themselves in three days, because that's when I'm going to meet them. So if we take the third month, the third day, add three days, we get the third month and the sixth day, or Savan the sixth. In Acts chapter 2, which happens on the day of Pentecost, how are we to understand this event? Acts chapter 2 is actually the renewing of the original covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 and verse 4, it is written, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The renewed covenant is a Torah-based covenant. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, it is written, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my Torah in their hearts, and in their minds will I write it. The renewed covenant is the Torah in our hearts and also in our minds. What is the difference between the original covenant at Mount Sinai and the renewed covenant? Well, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, it says, A new heart will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart, which is the heart of the original covenant, and I will give you a heart of flesh, which is the heart of the renewed covenant. A heart of flesh is a soft heart. You can work with it. A stony heart you can't work with. That is one of the main differences between the original covenant and the renewed. The original is the Torah written upon a heart of stone. The renewed is a Torah written upon a heart of flesh. But they're both based upon following and observing the Torah. So the renewed covenant is Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27. We can further understand what the renewed covenant is about. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit within you. What is the reason why he puts his spirit within us? Here it's telling us, I'm going to put my spirit within you, and by doing so, I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. Keep my judgments and do them. The purpose of him giving us his Holy Spirit is so that we will follow Torah. Shavuot is associated with a wedding, and specifically a betrothal. How can we see this? In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your espousal. The word espousal here is the Strong's number 3623. It's the Hebrew word kalula, which means betrothal or espousal. When you went after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. In order to understand what betrothal is, we need to understand the characteristics of the biblical marriage. There are two stages of a biblical marriage. The first stage is betrothal. And this happened with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. Betrothal is you are legally married, but you do not physically dwell with your spouse. When you physically dwell with your spouse in being married, this is the consummation and completion of the marriage, and it is called Nesuin in Hebrew. When is the Messiah going to physically dwell with his people? During the Messianic era. He's going to be teaching the nations Torah from Jerusalem. How can we furthermore see that a marriage took place at Mount Sinai. Well, there has to be a wedding proposal. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 3 and verse 5, we can see the proposal that the God of Israel makes to the nation of Israel. Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. Now therefore, here's the proposal. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. That was the proposal. Was the proposal accepted? It's accepted in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8. The house of Jacob says, I do. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. In this marriage, you have to have a marriage contract which specifies the terms and the conditions of the marriage. Therefore, at Mount Sinai, it is understood and seen that the ketubah or the marriage contract is the Torah. The God of Israel offered the Torah to the people as a contract. If you will obey, these blessings will come. If you don't obey, then it will result in these problems in our marriage. And one of the problems he said that would come about would be you're going to be separated from me. You will be exiled into the nations. Moses is the escort of 
the bride, which is the nation of Israel or the house of Jacob, to Mount Sinai, which is personified as being a hoopah. The wedding takes place underneath a hoopah. We can see this from the terminology used in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 17. And Moses brought forth the people, he's escorting them, out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. Where it uses the word nether, the nether part of the mount, in the King James, it's the Strong's number 8482, and it is the Hebrew word takti. This word means the low, the lower, the lowest, or the lowest parts. So they stood at the lowest part of the mountain. The imagery is that Mount Sinai is the hoopah, and they're standing at the lowest part of the mountain, or in other words, they're standing underneath the hoopah. So here, the imagery is Mount Sinai is likened unto a hoopah. If we want to look at another theme of the Feast of Pentecost or Shavuot, Let's look at Midrash Rabbah, Genesis 56, section 9, and making a comment regarding Genesis chapter 22, verse 13, where Abraham offers up Isaac. And what we're going to end up seeing is how this event is going to be associated with one of the themes of Shavuot in the event that happens at Mount Sinai. So in Genesis chapter 22, verse 13, it says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram. The Hebrew word where it's translated behind him is achar, which is the Strong's number 310. And actually, if you look at the definition of achar, it can mean afterwards or after the following event. And a word that's associated with achar is akarit, which means the end. Therefore, the word achar could mean, could be translated, so behold, afterward or in the future. Abraham was being shown something that was happening then, right after he had done something, but it was alluding to something in the future. So the rabbinical commentary, once again from Midrash Rabbah Genesis 56 in section 9 said Rabbi Judan after all that happened Israel still fall into the clutches of sin and in consequence become the victims of persecution yet they will ultimately be redeemed by a ram's horn as it says and the Lord God will blow the horn from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 14. Continuing on in Midrash Rabbah, Genesis 56, in section 9, Rabbi Abba ben Rabbi Papai and Rabbi Joshua of Siknan and Rabbi Lavi's name said, Because of the patriarch Abraham saw the ram extricate himself from one thicket and go and become entangled in another, the Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, So will your children be entangled in countries, changing from Babylon to Media, from Media to Greece, and from Greece to Edom or Rome. Yet they will eventually be redeemed by the ram's horn, as it is written, and the Lord God will blow the horn. The Lord of hosts will defend them. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 14 and 15 what is understood that's happening from Abraham offering up Isaac and the ram being caught in the thicket. The thicket represents sin 
or the sins of the people. And as a result of the sins of the people, they were exiled in the nations of the world. And being exiled in the nations of the world, they got entangled like the ram did in the thicket with the persecutions that those nations brought upon them. But the horn was caught in the thicket. And then what we're going to see is that the horn of the ram is going to represent the redemption from being caught in the thicket. The left horn of Abraham's ram that was caught in the thicket is seen as being blown at Mount Sinai. Genesis chapter 22 verse 13 says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, Achar, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 18 and 19, it says, And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, so it seemed that the shofar is being blown here, which is associated with the voice of the God of Israel. Moses spoke, and God answered him by a voice. The left horn of that ram is seen as being blown, as we just saw there at Mount Sinai, but the right horn is seen as being blown in association with the messianic redemption or the end of the exile of Jacob from all the nations where they've been scattered, which is associated with the messianic era. The ram of Isaac, which was caught in the thicket and sacrificed in place of Isaac, had two horns. The God of Israel blew upon the left horn on Mount Sinai when the Torah was revealed. The right horn was greater than the left one. In the future, the God of Israel will blow upon it when he brings back the exiles, that is, the house of Jacob scattered in all the nations, to the land of Israel. This commentary comes from Pirkei, the sayings of Rabbi Eliezer, chapter 31. In the specifications for this season and these events, we're told in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 16 and 17, that two loaves are to be baked with leaven. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. And you shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are first fruits unto the Lord. What's the spiritual meaning and application of these things? The two wave loaves are holy to the God of Israel. Continuing on in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 20, And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the firstfruits for a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. So the two loaves baked with leaven are holy to the Lord. The two wave loaves are representative of us and believers in Yeshua as the Messiah. They've got to represent the nation of Israel as well. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, it says, Speak unto the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation. 
because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So the people of the God of Israel are to be holy unto him. This was holy unto the Lord, and it was referred to as first fruits. Israel is first fruits of the God of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness under the Lord, and the first fruits of his increase. Israel is called first fruits. Jacob is a witness of the God of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 and verse 10, it is written, But now thus says the Lord that created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, Jacob, you are my witnesses. Jacob witnesses. So Jacob is plural. That's because Jacob got divided up into northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Both are called to be his witnesses. The people who identify with faith and belief in the God of Israel today, the world calls them Judaism and Christianity. We are called to be his witnesses. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Joshua, who was from the tribe of Ephraim, and Caleb from the tribe of Judah, are witnesses of the God of Israel. Numbers chapter 13, verse 6 and verse 8. Of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephthah, In Numbers 13, verse 8, of the tribe of Ephraim, Joshua, the son of Nun. Israel is called an olive tree. The Lord God called your name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit, with the noise of a great tumult. He has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. For the Lord of hosts that planted you has pronounced evil against you for the evil of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Therefore, there is a natural olive tree who is referred to as the house of Jacob that were at Mount Sinai. This natural olive tree is personified visibly in the earth today as being associated with the Jewish people. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. The redeemed olive tree in Messiah is also referred to as the house of Jacob. In Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, it says, He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Who is Messiah ruling and reigning over? His body, his redeemed people. And what is the name of his body? It's called here. He's reigning over the house of Jacob. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So in Messiah we are the redeemed house of Jacob. So there's a literal house of Jacob. There's a redeemed house of Jacob. Jacob. We are called to be his witnesses, and that's why there were two loaves baked with leaven. The two loaves represent the natural house of Jacob, the redeemed house of Jacob. The two wave loaves represent 
Jacob, who was his witnesses, Ephraim and Judah. So they're baked with leaven because within the covenant family of the God of Israel, there still exists sin. Leaven represents sin. So these are two loaves baked. They go through the refining process of the God of Israel, but they still contain leaven. And that being the case, they are still holy unto him, and they are still his first fruits people. So that's the meaning of the spiritual application to the verse that we read earlier that mentioned this. The minha, which is the meat or the meal offering, was to be made upon fire. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 16 and 18. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock and two rams. They shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord with their meat offering and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire. So this mincha, this meat or meal offering, is to be done as an offering made by fire. Once again, fire is a reference to a refining work that the God of Israel does in our lives, and he does this refining work through the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 3 verse 16 says, John answered saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I comes, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What happened in Acts chapter 2 verse 3? There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Yeshua HaMashiach. When celebrating the festival or the feast of Shavuot, you're to come to the feast and bring offerings, and you're not to come before the God of Israel empty-handed. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 16 and 17, it is written, Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God, in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of unleavened bread, in the feast of weeks, and the feast of tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he has given you. What's the spiritual meaning of this? Believers in Messiah are to give to the kingdom of the God of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 18 says, But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he that gives you power to get wealth. Why does he give you power to get wealth? That he may establish his covenant for the work of his kingdom, which he swear unto your fathers as it is this day. Matthew chapter 6 verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, that is, earthly needs, shall be added unto you. Believers in the Messiah are to give to the kingdom 
as we can see that Rav Shaul or the Apostle Paul instructed in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 6 through 8. But this I say, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Continuing on in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9-11, through 11, as it is written, He has dispersed abroad, he's given to the poor, his righteousness remains forever. Now he that ministers seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causes through us thanksgiving to God. The celebration of Shavuot, or the Feast of Pentecost, is a commandment or a statute forever. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 16. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days. And you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. And you shall proclaim on the selfsame day, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 21, that it may be a holy convocation unto you. You shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. The spiritual meaning is that the Holy Spirit will abide with us forever. The Holy Spirit was given in the renewed covenant to help us to follow the commandments of the God of Israel. And John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17 says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and shall be in you. This is going to conclude our teaching on the various themes of Shavuot or the Feast of Pentecost. And in examining the various themes, we understand that we're being told that we are on a journey out of Egypt, which is a type of the world and the world system. And the God of Israel is redeeming us by putting the blood of the Lamb upon the doorpost. And then when we come out of Egypt, we're supposed to count seven complete weeks. And ultimately, when the God of Israel brings us out, he wants us to serve him on Mount Sinai. The counting is of an omer, and the omer represents us as believers in the Messiah who have come out of Egypt. And in order to meet God on the mountain, we have to go through the same things that that omer went through, where it was beaten which represents humility. It was parched with fire, which represents refinement. And we have to get the sin out of our lives, which is how it was tossed to the wind. And it was ground into fine flour, and we have to be that fine flour. We have to be white. We have to come before him as a sanctified people to meet with him. And then it went through 13 sieves 
which represents unity. We come and we love the God of Israel and we love the brethren. And so as we come out of Egypt, we go through a spiritual growth process of maturity that the God of Israel desires of his people. This counting of the Omer was a controversy in the first century, and it still is a controversy today, whereas the interpretation is the morrow after the Sabbath. There were various sects. There are those today that says the morrow after the Sabbath is a reference to the weekly Sabbath is when you start counting. If this is done, then you're always going to celebrate Shavuot on Sunday. However, the rabbis interpret that the counting begins the day following the first day of unleavened bread or Nisan or Aviv 15. So the counting starts on Aviv 16. So what else is associated with this season, this festival, is that a marriage took place at Mount Sinai. A betrothal was made at Mount Sinai. The commandments were given to the redeemed people of the God of Israel at Mount Sinai, which is a remembrance and a celebration of the coming out of Egypt and the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost. There was a renewing of that covenant in Acts in chapter 2. The original covenant is a Torah-based covenant. The renewed covenant is also a Torah-based covenant. The original one is a Torah written upon a heart of stone. The renewed one is a Torah written upon a heart of flesh. As a part of what the God of Israel required at this time in celebrating this festival is you are to take two wave loaves. They are to be baked with leaven. They are holy unto the God of Israel. The two baked loaves represents the people that he's in covenant relationship with. There is a natural house of Jacob that was at Mount Sinai. In Messiah, there is a redeemed house of Jacob. Both natural house of Jacob and the redeemed house of Jacob, they still have sin that's in their lives. That's why you have two wave loaves that are baked with leaven. Two in the Bible represents witness, and his people are to be his witnesses in the earth of who he is, and that we are his people. So these two wave loaves are holy to the Lord. We are holy to him, and we are called to be a holy people. I pray that this message has been a blessing to you and will help you to understand some of the themes that are associated with celebrating the festival of Shavuot. Let us always remember that we are told in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, he who says he abides in him, that he who says he's a believer in Yeshua as the Messiah, ought himself so to walk, that means live our lives, as he walked, how did he live his life unto his heavenly father? He did so by keeping the commandments of his father, which means he followed Torah. If we're followers of the Messiah, we should follow Torah as well and walk as Messiah walked. I pray once again that the message has been a blessing to you. Shalom in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen.